you can see. All right, let me go ahead and pray for us, and uh, we will get started with our class today. Father, we are grateful that uh, we have this opportunity on a Sunday morning to uh, join together to study your word and study these important topics, and particularly today as we discuss Christ, our mediator, uh, an exciting topic for us, a very comforting and very helpful topic for us because it uh, talks specifically and directly about our Lord and what he's done and the offices he holds and the roles he plays and the salvation that we have in him. And so we ask that you would help us as we look at a lot of passages, as we discuss concepts that uh, may be familiar and comforting or may be um, possibly new to us. I pray for your blessing on this time this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, as we're looking through chapter 8, um, you guys uh, spent last week, of course, looking at chapter 7. Chapter 7 was the introduction of the concept of the covenant, right, which laid out the groundwork, basically, of what um, uh, what structures, what gives structure and direction to our salvation, and talked about the covenant relationship between um, uh, the members of the Trinity and then um, also uh, including us in that. And so d- salvation was discussed in those terms in regard to uh, the covenant and how that's laid out in Scripture and some basics of that. And uh, you were reminded, and I would remind you again, to um, go online and you can look at the, we spent last semester, the entire uh, semester, last semester in evening church talking about um, covenant theology, examining um, covenant and covenants and and whatnot. And so I would encourage you to go work through that. We worked in greater detail. Even that was kind of a um, an introductory kind of deal, but at least it was 13 weeks of introduction rather than just one week, which was last week. So um, I would encourage you to dig a little bit deeper into that. But what happens in the covenant, the structure of the, uh, of the uh, excuse me, this, this, the structure of the confession is the way it builds. Um, chapter 7 gives that discussion of covenant, lays the groundwork, and then uh, chapters 9 and following will begin to detail aspects of salvation particular aspects like we're used to discussing. So if you would look at the uh, table of contents in the confession, if you have a copy of that, um, I would encourage you to do that. And you look at at the chapters uh, 9 and following, you see the discussion of free will and then effectual calling and then justification, adoption, sanctification, etc., etc. So you see a a detailed spelling out of aspects of uh, theology, aspects particularly of theology as it relates to our salvation. And so chapter 7 went from uh, this, this discussion of the covenant relationship and what gives direction to salvation. Now in chapter 9 and following, you have an explanation and a development of those aspects of salvation, focusing on different aspects for each chapter. Well, smack in the middle of that, where it ought to be, is chapter 8, which is our chapter today, which is on Christ the mediator. If chapter 7 is the giving of the covenant and the laying out the basics of the covenant structure and, uh, and uh, direction of salvation, chapter 8 is the mediator of that covenant, Christ himself. And so you can see uh, key aspects uh, are going, going to be developed in this particular uh, paragraph or this particular chapter that we're going to look at today. And so um, it's 10... 10 paragraphs, um, 
and I would encourage you to spend some time reading in the confession, just reading through these 10 paragraphs that are found in chapter 8. And so it sounds like we're biting off a whole lot to be able to cover it in the next uh, 50 minutes or so, but I think we're going to be able to do it. I've, um, I'm confident that there's not a lot new in here for us, though it's clear and more detailed perhaps than, um, than we might uh, think about it at certain times, but it's giving a, a picture of Christ as the mediator of this covenant, and then the later chapters are going to be developing for us how that plays out, His mediation for us, how it plays out in the various um, aspects of our salvation. So as we turn and look through uh, this, this uh, uh, chapter, what I've done is I've arranged it according to questions. I've asked a question that paragraph one is, is going to answer for us. And we're going to look at the passages of Scripture, and there are a bunch given. You'll notice, if you're looking at the confession there, that you have a list of quite a number of passages that you could spend time looking at. And uh, for the sake of uh, brevity today, I'm only going to go through two or three for each paragraph, but they're all listed there in the confession. I would encourage you to go look at them and, uh, and trace those out and, and think about uh, what is being said in the, uh, in the confession here. So, question one that we want to look at is, uh, what actions did God undertake to accomplish the redemption of sinners? If chapter 7 gives the covenant that promises that redemption of sinners, what actions did God take to bring that about, to, uh, to accomplish the redemption of sinners? And so we could look at those passages that you have there. I encourage you to take notes. Um, Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. Behold my servant, so this is one of the servant songs of Isaiah. You've got a discussion um, pointing out this servant who's going to accomplish the will of the Lord. He, he appears several times in Isaiah, and you come to understand that this is Christ. This is, a, this is God's appointing uh, Christ to do this work. And so this servant here, Isaiah 42 and verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold... My chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so in an initial attempt to answer this question, what has God done to accomplish the redemption of sinners is that he appointed a servant to bring it about. He appointed one who would be filled with his spirit, one in whom his soul delights, one whom he would uphold, one called his servant, that he would appoint to bring about that salvation, to bring about that redemption. And in Isaiah's language, that's the servant. That's this one appointed by God who is going to do that. And of course, as we see the development of theology throughout the Bible, we come to understand more and more clearly that that is Christ, and that is what Christ is doing. Uh, and so we could uh, skip down and look for a moment at uh, John 17 and verse 6. John 17 and verse 6, this is in uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, and He says there, I have manifested your name, so He's praying, He's speaking to the Father, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So you have 
you have this prayer where Jesus, talking to the Father, is pointing out the fact that the Father gave the Son a work to do. The Father gave the Son a people to redeem. Those people were given to the Son. And Jesus says, I have manifested your name to these people. The ones you gave me, I have manifested your name to them. And, and uh, he will continue on in this prayer and say, I have done the work you've given me to do. So you kind of have both ends of this, this relationship from Isaiah 42 and the statement by the Father that I've appointed a servant to do this work. And in John 17, you have Jesus saying, I, who have been appointed to do this work, have done it. I've accomplished it. And so I've manifested your name to them. They have kept your word. And so you have a recognition by Jesus himself that he is that one, that servant who was appointed by God for the purpose of redeeming sinners. And so what has God undertaken to redeem sinners? Well, he appointed a servant to do it. He appointed one who would be the mediator who will accomplish that. We see this similarly in 1 Peter 1, 19 through 20 where we read, uh, let's start reading at 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. So you were ransomed, but with what? 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He has been sent to do that work, to redeem sinners by means of shedding his own precious blood like a lamb without blemish or spot. He who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, he who was set apart for this purpose, he who was appointed by God to do this, he was, who was ordained to be the mediator who would bring about this redemption. And so uh, you have there on your list, uh, I've called this... Um, when it says 2LCF, two two, uh, the second London Confession, uh, 8.1, the covenantal context, or better, I think he ordained a mediator. The question is, what action did God undertake to accomplish the redemption of sinners? Well, he appointed an, a mediator to do it. So let's look at the confession and see how the confession discusses this. It pleased God, it says in 8.1, in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, which was referenced in chapter 7, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So this last section here you can see is going to be developed in the subsequent chapters uh, that we're not going to look at today. But you see this introductory topic. The question was, what did God do for the redemption of sinners? And the succinct answer is he appointed a mediator who was going to play that role and he would do these things. He would be prophet, priest, and king and, and all these things that we said here. Right? So that statement of the, of the confession is introductory. It gives a, a basic understanding, 
Now, there, there are big words, and there's a lot to it there, but you can see that it wraps up essentially what we discussed by looking at these few verses and discussing what it is uh, uh, God undertook uh, to accomplish our redemption. That is, he appointed, he, he uh, ordained a mediator for that purpose. So we can move on to the next question. Question two, which is going to bring us to paragraph two. Who is qualified to serve as mediator between God and man? Who could play such a role? We're talking about um, the, the distance between God and man. Who could, who could fill that distance? Who could cover that ground? Who could play that role? Well, we look at Galatians 4.4, 4, and we see, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. So first of all, He's God the Son, sent forth, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, human. So we're introducing the idea that's going to be developed more fully later on of the deity of this mediator and the humanity of this mediator and that God is the one who sent him forth and this is the one who qualifies this is the one who fits the bill as mediator God's own son was the one sent not a prophet selected from among the prophets not just a person sent, not even an angel, an angelic being sent for this purpose. God sent forth His own Son, born of woman, born under the law. You can see also, if you look at uh, Hebrews 2 and uh, 14, 16, 17 and all that, uh, I'll start reading in verse 14, talking about the mediator and what he must be like, what uh, characteristics must be true of him. Starting in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, this Son of God, this mediator, had to be made like man for whom He is mediating. Had to be made like Him and, and uh, took on flesh, right? Took on flesh and blood. He also partook of these things, it says there in verse 14. And he continues in uh, Hebrews 4 and, and uh, 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You think about Christ taking a nap on a boat. Why? Because He was tired. You see that Jesus ate because He needed to, because He's human. Right? So he took, on, uh, he took on those aspects of humanity and yet uh, without sin. Though He faced temptation, 
like we face temptation. And he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So here, in discussing who is this mediator and what is he like, he's human, he's taking on, he has taken on our weaknesses as humans, but not our sin as humans. And so, uh, that is uh, this mediator that we uh, have to deal with, that qualifies him, fits him to stand between as the, as the one who can uh, relate God to man and man to God, who can mediate between the two, particularly mediating this covenant. And who could do that? Well, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So this mediator has some high qualifications. Uh, he must be able to stand between God and man as both God and man. Representing man, he's taken on our weaknesses, our infirmities, but not our sins. And so he stands between the two. So our question here is, who is qualified to serve as mediator between God and man? The confession, uh, moving on to paragraph 2, says the Son of God... The second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made. All right, so we can pause right there and, and see the language is high language about uh, attributing deity to Christ Himself. He is very God of very God. He's eternal God. He didn't become God. He wasn't a lot like God. He's not some hybrid between God and man. He's not some version of God Jr. He's very God of very God. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. And by the way, this language, much of this language up here, can be found in the early creeds of the church, where in the early centuries of the church, they were dealing with all manner of uh, different beliefs and teachings about who Jesus was. And the, the church would come together to resolve these very difficult um, uh, attacks on who Christ was, these arguments that were uh, winning people over to them that would, that would say that, um, that there was a time when Jesus was not, that uh, that He could not be God like the Father is God, could not be. And so there, those were, uh, there were a lot of teachings in that regard and, and, and other issues regarding the Trinity, etc., that were uh, being discussed, being debated, and the early church got together for these councils in the early centuries of the church to hammer out what the Bible teaches on these topics and gave statements once and for all on these topics. And, the, and so this is, we're talking, we're talking fourth, fifth century, these uh, definitions were laid out, giving the boundaries of what it means to be a Christian, that if you say with, with many of the early heretics that there was a time when Jesus was not, or there was a time when Jesus was not God, or that Jesus was in some way less God than the Father, or he was some hybrid between God and man. If you, if you claim those things, you're outside the bounds of Christianity. So the early councils got together and, uh, and established those definitions, establishing the boundaries of Christianity so that to go outside of those 
creeds is to go outside of Christianity. And so here we are, a thousand years later and more, with the Second London Confession, and they are trying to define what they believe about Scripture, and in doing so, particularly as regards God the Son, they don't have to invent new language. They just go right back to those creedal definitions of Christianity, and they're using that language here. And anyone who's familiar with uh, historical theology or who has uh, studied theology and these topics will recognize this as language straight out of the history of the church as the church has been defining who Christ is. And the confession just grabs that and says, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Let's just take that, put it right here so that we can recognize what we're talking about. So very high uh, Christology, we would say, uh, understanding of Christ here that he is He's the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, very and eternal God, etc., etc., who upholds and governs all things He has made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon Him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ." the only mediator between God and man. Now, you could be forgiven if, you, if I lost you somewhere in here. All right, there's a lot there, but what's being discussed here is what we call the hypostatic union. The joining together in one person of two natures. The one person of Christ, and yet He has two natures. You and I are one person with one nature, he is one person, but He possesses two natures, a divine nature, very God, a divine nature, and human nature, so that He's actually man. But those two are not joined together like some kind of hybrid, because if that were the case, that would mean He is no longer actually God or actually man. If we mingle those two together, it's like uh, mixing two different colors. If you have, if you have uh, uh, this kind of food coloring in water and this kind of food coloring in water, and you mix the two together, you're going to have something new. If you, if, you take, if you take yellow and blue and mix them together, you're not going to have yellow and blue anymore. You're going to have something different. You're going to have green, right? And so if you take if in our understanding we think that, that Jesus is like a hybrid between God and man, well, then He's neither God nor man. And if He's neither God nor man, He can't stand for God before man. And He can't stand for man before God. But instead, in Christ we have one person, two natures, joined together, mingled or confused. Joined together in Him. So, using the language here, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures 
were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Meaning the two are distinct and yet they are joined together in Christ. Okay, that's the hypostatic union. This is not original language. Uh, there's nothing new here, though it's a deep topic, obviously. But uh, there's nothing, nothing new here. Which person, this one person, is very God and very man, yet one Christ? One person, two natures. The only mediator between God and man. Now again, there's nothing new there. It may be new to us, and it may be new to us to think about it quite that specifically, but we've talked about it in this room before. We've talk, talked about the hypostatic union and worked through it uh, a little bit. Um, and so the language here is nothing new. It's, it's basic, though deep, Christian doctrine. It's agreed upon, solid, sound, orthodox Christian doctrine, though there's a lot to it. As we think about uh, what goes on with it, we, uh, we can get... Um, we could spend a long time talking about this topic right here, okay? So I'll open it up for questions. We're, we're only two paragraphs in, but I think those are the two, um, two of the biggest uh, paragraphs to hit on. Any, any question on this? Hard to understand, yes, right? Would you have arrived at this just by reasoning and meditating upon God? No, but Scripture teaches it, okay? Scripture teaches these things, and the church has recognized this from the beginning, Okay, hammered this stuff out in the early centuries of the church. Yes. Yeah. Is that like a what? Yeah. So, like, like, the first time of Jesus, like, the man, he, he would not sin, but the first time of Jesus Christ, the God, he cannot, he cannot sin. So there's a paragraph uh, coming up on that topic. So, the question um, for the recording and for those who, who maybe weren't able to hear is how do we talk about the different natures of Jesus? It's one person. And so sometimes we'll say this about Jesus. And sometimes we'll say something different about Jesus. And in our minds, actually, we're talking about uh, Jesus as man in his human nature. Other times we're talking about Jesus in his divine nature. And so, yes, we can speak differently about them. Uh, and so um, we can divide those things. So, for example... When, uh, when Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man? Well, of course, uh, the, Son of, the, the Son of God knows everything. But He can make that statement about Himself because in His human nature, He did not know that. And so, yes, you can distinguish between the two, and there's a paragraph coming up on that later on. All right, there's a lot here, um, but, but there's nothing new here. It's just a very um, profound topic. Let's move on to question three, paragraph three. How was the mediator prepared and equipped for this work? How was he prepared and equipped for this work? You've got some verses there. Colossians 1, 
and verse 19, in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If our question here is, how was the mediator prepared and equipped for this work? Well, the fullness of God dwelt within Him. We have a statement in Hebrews chapter 7. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's what Christ is like. That's, uh, that's how He's fitted for this work, in that He is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, right? In Acts 2 and verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this one who is crucified for us, that God put in that position, the one who is qualified in His character, He's qualified in His being, He is our high priest, He is the one who stands in that position. If our question is, how was the mediator prepared and equipped for His work? Uh, we see here in 8.3, the Lord Jesus in His human nature thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in Him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that, being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, He might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator, and surety, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. So God called him to this work, fitted him for this work, equipped him for this work, such that he was sanctified, anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, in, in, in whom uh, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge were, Please the Father that all the fullness uh, of God should dwell in Him, etc., etc. He's equipped by God, appointed, set aside by God for this purpose of performing this role of mediator. He didn't, he didn't give Himself the job. The Father called Him to it. And the Father, in calling Him to it, also put all power and judgment in His hand and gave Him commandment to execute it. Right? So He was put in that position fully furnished and equipped and prepared by God for that purpose. Question four, what work did the mediator undertake to reconcile sinners to God? What work did he undertake for the accomplishment of this? Well, we could spend a lot of time looking at this, but I encourage you to go to Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 10, where you've got a paragraph here. On this topic, consequently, starting at verse 5, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. 
right? So here you've got a conversation about God and about Christ and, and this statement that um, Christ says, you didn't, you didn't want me to come and offer all kinds of sacrifices and stuff like that. You prepared a body for me in which to accomplish this redemption. And so uh, then I said, verse 7, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Why did He come? He came to obey in His body, both in submission to the law, in the active obedience of His life, and in giving Himself as a sacrifice. Not offering a sacrifice of a big fat bull or something but giving himself as that sacrifice. What work did the mediator undertake? He came, took on a body as sent by God, and offered himself, gave himself in his body for that purpose, to redeem sinners. And that was the purpose for which God sent him. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that... In Him we might become the righteousness of God. If you don't have that verse underlined or memorized, do so. Uh, because that is, um, that is a key and central gospel fact that tells us and helps us understand what He did. God made Him, for our sake, God made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Pictures there of our sin placed upon him so that he was counted guilty. Though he was not guilty, he knew no sin, yet sin was placed upon him. He was counted as if he were in the place of sin in our place so that that sin was executed in him so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. That's what he came to do. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, another one that I need to have memorized, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is what He came to do. There's more to it than that, but this is the crux of it. This is the crux of it. So what, did he, uh, what, what work did He undertake to reconcile sinners to God? Well, it was the giving of Himself. The way it's put here in paragraph 4 of chapter 8 of the Confession, this office, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, I have come to do your will. He did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us. Enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified, died, and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world." So, 
a good, succinct statement there about the work of the mediator that he came to accomplish. Nothing really new there, but it's put in very clear order. You've got passages there that point that direction, though I think this one is super clear. Uh, but you do have other passages there that you can look at. But this is the work that the mediator came to perform. This is the essence of it. Having been sent by the Father, He willingly undertook it. He came and submitted to the law, obeyed, was righteous according to the law, and yet gave Himself as a sacrifice to stand in the place to pay the penalty for those who had broken that law, suffered in His body, suffered uh, uh, in His uh, his soul. He was crucified, died, buried, and yet remained uncorrupted, but raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of His Father, and He intercedes now and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. That's the work, in essence, that He came to do. Question five. What did the mediator's work accomplish as it relates to God? If we think about the fact that Christ is mediator, He stands between two groups, two parties, right? He stands between God and man. He mediates between the two. So we're going to ask the question here, uh, what did His work accomplish in relation to God? And later on, we're going to ask the question, what did His work accomplish in relation to man? Because He's the one that goes between them. So how do we understand the work that He accomplished? Well, Romans 3, 25 and 26, a very powerful passage there for us. Uh, whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. Propitiation, one who bears uh, the, the penalty for sin to the fullest. Uh, he, re- uh, he was put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, what does He accomplish in relation to God? He gives Himself as a satisfaction for sin so that sin is punished in Him. We can continue and look at Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 14 and 15. Again, you've got a lot more verses there uh, in, uh, in the confession. I would encourage you to go look them up for the sake of time. We're only going to look at a few, but I think they're exemplary of, of what we're talking about. Hebrews 9, 14 and 15. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. Right? So uh, the discussion here is about um, the meeting of the penalty for sin, the debt sin, uh, the debt for sin, the the guilt that is owed, um, that is paid by Christ. He stands in that place. He meets that need that we have before God so that uh, God is justified in justifying us as well. He continues in 10.14 of Hebrews, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we have here a picture of 
God being satisfied, He who is holy God, He who has been offended by our sin, has that offense met and paid for so that, so that the, the sin debt is paid, so that He remains righteous and yet uh, that penalty for sin is paid. Here's how it's put in the confession. The Lord Jesus, by His perfect obedience and sacrifice of Himself, which He through the eternal Spirit once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to Him. These are the things that have been accomplished as it relates to God by Christ. We're going to have a question later on about how it relates to man, but you can see that that sin debt of righteous, uh, just God has been met by Him so that the, the justice of God is satisfied, so that reconciliation is procured and uh, an everlasting inheritance is purchased from God for us. All right? Question six. How were the benefits obtained by the mediator's work made effective for those saints who lived before his work was actually accomplished in history? Right? Jesus being crucified in the first century does not mean that only those who live after Him can be redeemed. So how is it that His payment, His sacrifice that He has made can be applied to uh, those from before that time? This is question 6. And you look at uh, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So notice, this grace that is yours was talked about beforehand. It was spoken of beforehand by the prophets of old in the Old Testament. It wasn't news to them. They didn't have as clear a grasp on it as we do. They searched and inquired, but they talked about it. They searched and inquired carefully. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So it's not as if the gospel was unknown in the Old Testament. It was known and expected. How clearly was it understood? Well, that's, that's different for different people. Uh, but they, they knew that it was there. They saw the promise of it, and they looked carefully, and they searched carefully, and they thought about it because the promise was there. It was not unknown to them. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2. The good news came to us just as to them. That same gospel given in the Old Testament. But the message they heard, speaking of these particular ones, did not benefit them. Why? Why did it not benefit this particular group he's talking about? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The gospel message was proclaimed in the Old Testament. Some believed it and received its benefits. Others did not believe it and so did not receive their rest. But that same gospel promise was given in the Old Testament as is received in the New Testament. You can tell because of the wording there, the good news came to, to us just as to them. 
There's a commonality. The gospel was proclaimed before Jesus came on the scene. Of this promised Messiah who would come, who would fulfill all righteousness, who would bear the punishment for our sins, and by Him, by faith in Him, and only by faith in Him, would we be saved. So you have that, that promise of the seed who would crush the head of the serpent, though He Himself would be crushed in His heel. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He who made that promise keeps it. He is a promise-keeping God. He, in the, the sacrifice that He has made, is effective, has always been effective. It was effective on His promise, and it was effective on His accomplishment of it. And so, how is it that believers in the Old Testament were saved? It's the same way that we are saved. How were those benefits transferred uh, to them or available to them? Uh, because that gospel was proclaimed, and Christ is the one on whom the gospel depends, and He never changes. His promise is always kept, and so it's a reality even for those who were before. The way it's put in 8.6, although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after His incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect of all ages successfully from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein He was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman, which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, being the same yesterday and today and forever. And so uh, that, that question is a, a brief one, but it's an important one to think about, the gospel in the Old Testament and its eff efficacy in the Old Testament. Question seven, how does Scripture portray Christ's two natures as they participate in this mediatorial work. All right, this, this, is, uh, this is a little bit in the weeds, but it's important to clarify. John 3, very interesting, because going back to Liz's question, you've got one Christ, one person, but two natures. Divine nature, human nature, joined together, but not mixed together. Not mingled, not confused, distinct, but joined. And sometimes when Scripture talks about Christ, it's clear he's talking about, uh, the Scripture's talking about one nature versus the other. Like I gave the example of uh, the, the Son of Man does not know the day or the hour, right? Well, does God the Son not know the day or the hour? God the Son is omniscient, right? The, the, the divine nature of Christ is omniscient. But in His human nature, it's not even possible for him to be omniscient because his brain is limited. He has limited capacity. He's human. We're not omniscient. And he wasn't omniscient in his human nature. And so he could say, I don't know when that is. So he's speaking out of his human nature. And sometimes you will see that uh, clarification made in Scripture, but sometimes you see it swapped, which is interesting. So look at uh, John 3 and verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. Now, who's that? No one has come down from heaven. No one has gone into heaven except the one who's come down. Who has come down from heaven? Jesus. Je Jesus, the Son of God. 
right? The second person of the Trinity has come down, right? But what does it say? The Son of Man, right? A reference to His humanity. Now, why is that? Is John confused? No, it's because of the joining together of the two. You can speak of one as if it's the other, and sometimes Scripture will do that. There's another example. Um, in Hebrews, excuse me, in Acts, uh, nope, Hebrews 13.8, nope, sorry, I don't have my glasses and I'm having trouble. Acts 20.28, 20, is that where I'm looking? Yes. Yes. yes, thank you, Acts 20.28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit was made your overseers to care for the church of God which He purchased by His own blood. Whose blood? God's blood? Does God bleed? Does God have blood? God doesn't have blood. But here's a reference spoken of the deity of Christ, though it's actually the humanity that performed that function. So we need to be careful. This is not a big deal we want to spend a ton of time on. But when we're reading Scripture, sometimes because, because the, the, the two natures are joined together inseparably in Christ and yet one Christ, sometimes one nature can be spoken of where it's actually the other that's intended. Okay. Not always is that the case, but we need not to be wooden uh, literalists here and, and, and think that somehow God has blood because of this sentence. Or think that somehow Jesus, the man, descended from heaven, lowered down from heaven on a sheet. No, He was conceived in the, in the womb of the virgin. It was, it was the Son of God who descended to be conceived in the, uh, to, be, to be united with His human nature uh, conceived in the womb of the virgin. As it's put in 8-7, Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures. By each nature doing that which is proper to itself, Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Just making a statement there to clarify uh, our understanding of how these two work together. Moving on. Yikes. Question eight. What did the mediator's work accomplish as it relates to man? What did the mediator's work accomplish as it relates to man? John 10, 15, and 16. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep, and then he assures that they listen to his voice. You see the work he's doing towards man. He's laying down His life for them, but then He's also doing the work that ensures that they will listen to Him. Or we could say in Romans 8, uh, 9, and 14, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Here you have the work of the Spirit in you. You have... Uh, the uniting by the Spirit of you to the Son, so that you have become sons of God. The Spirit has accomplished that. So we're talking about what work does the mediator do that benefits humanity, or what's the work that he does on behalf of men? Well, by uh, placing 
uh, by the work of His Spirit, we are united with Him so that uh, we are joined together with Him. His benefits are ours. And this work is done by His Spirit. It's accomplished uh, by His purposes, by His plan. John 3 and verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is who's ever, with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives birth to someone when they are born again. How did that happen? The Spirit did it. It's like the wind. You feel the wind and you, and you, and, 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 and you, you kind of feel the direction and whatever, but where did it come from? You don't know. Where's it going? You don't know. And so it is with the person born of the Spirit. It may be that in our, our service today, there'll be someone who's been coming to church for 20 years and who has thought they were a Christian the whole time, and suddenly today the Spirit might give birth, might give life to that person. That's accomplished by the work of Christ as mediated, uh, as, as, as applied by the Holy Spirit. And so it's put in the confession to all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption. He does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same making intercession for them, uniting them to Himself by His Spirit, revealing to them in and by the Word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by His Word and Spirit, and overcoming all their enemies by His almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to His wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. And all of free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. He does the work of applying it to us. The work that He has accomplished vis-a-vis the Father, He turns and He applies it to us as those who have been given to Him by the Father. So that we are joined to Him. He Himself as the mediator doesn't just stand in the middle giving suggestions to God and to man. He's paid the full penalty uh, in, in respect to God, and then He applies that by His Spirit, drawing us along, persuading us to believe, uh, applying that to us, giving us new life by His Spirit, etc., etc., so that it accomplishes the work of His, His redemption. It's not just offered and presented and then left for all who will take it only. It's offered and presented and accomplished and applied by Him. Question 9. Can all or part of Christ's role as mediator be shared or transferred to another? Now this is particularly important in a, in a Roman Catholic context where you've got a, a pope who stands as a mediator uh, representing Christ on the earth and you've got the mediatrix, uh, the Virgin Mary, um, going between God and man. So the, the, the question that is being dealt with and answered here is, can his role of mediator be shared in any way with anyone? With the Pope, with Mary, with anyone, with the saints? No, because of what we read in many places, but 1 Timothy 2.5, I think is very clear, there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, period. So, very simply put, the office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other. Others need not apply. 
Question 10, why are Christ's threefold offices of prophet, priest, and king necessary to His serving as our mediator with God? I encourage you to read those verses, um, Luke 1.18, or John 1.18, and then Luke 1.74 uh, and 75, uh, etc., and the others that are found there in your confession. But uh, for the sake of answering this, because I think this is beautiful, beautiful, I want to move on to this and close with it. The confession reads in paragraph 10 of chapter 8, this number and order of offices, prophet, priest, king, is necessary. Why? Why do we need a prophet? For in respect to our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. We've got to learn of God. How can we do so? We're ignorant. We must be taught he is the one who reveals the Father. Hebrews 1 and uh, and verse 1 and 2, particularly on that topic. Uh, and uh, John 1 and verse 18, he's the one who makes him known, exegetes him, makes him known. So because of our ignorance, we, we require his prophetical office. And in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable to God. We are in ourselves unacceptable to God. And so we need a priest to go between who can reconcile us and make us and present us acceptable to God, right? Because of our alienation from God, the imperfection of the best of our services, and how often do we not offer the best of our services? We must have a priest, and he is that priest and king. In respect of our uh, averseness and utter inability to return to God, and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. We need to be overruled by his kingship, and we need our enemies to be overruled by his kingship. So he serves as prophet because we are ignorant. He serves as priest because we are unacceptable to God and ourselves. He serves as king because we need to be overruled and we need to have our enemies overcome as well. And that he does. That the mediator does on our behalf. That's a lot and very fast. Thank you. I, I, would, I did go fast. I know that. So these are all posted online, by the way. I would encourage you to go back and listen. Read through the confession. Read through what's there. It may be more on the topic than you're used to thinking about, but it's not new. It may be new to you, um, at least at the depth we've looked at it, uh, but it's, it's straight Christian Orthodox doctrine from the earliest days of the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we rejoice in Jesus, our Savior, our mediator between us and you, because we must have Him. We must have Him because of our ignorance, because of our uh, rebellion, because of uh, our being unacceptable to you in ourselves. We must have Jesus as our mediator, and we rejoice that by faith we do, that the benefits uh, that He has accomplished on our behalf are credited to us, that we have been reconciled to you by Him and what He has done, and we rejoice in that. We, we recognize we don't deserve that. We recognize we have not accomplished that, could never, would never accomplish that. That would not be ours by any other way except it be accomplished by Jesus, our mediator, our Savior. And so we rejoice in Him and we look forward to going on to the service where we get to sing uh, praises uh, to you by Christ, that we get to pray to you because of Christ. 
that we get to hear your word proclaimed, empowered by your Holy Spirit as Jesus, your Son, our mediator, is lifted up. We pray that you would do a great work in your people. In Jesus' name, amen.